Matthew chapter 16 to begin so that we see the, the ordinances, the church ordinances within the bigger picture of the church. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. Feel free to raise your hand. If you have a pencil, I encourage you to write some of these things down. I'm going to give a number of verses. And these are some things that you'll be able to reflect on and teach your children and put into practice, I pray. There's a verse in the book of Acts that says, The Lord was adding daily to the church those who are being saved. And it's always exciting to hear of that. Some of you remember Denise Kirton, who was with us for years, a single mom with her four children who eventually moved to somewhere down around Houston, Texas. And she's probably been down there about five years. But she left a, a voicemail for me this week that was so encouraging. She's had a burden for her family to come to the Lord for many, many years. And she sent me a message saying her brother, after 18 years of her praying for him, just recently started attending the Chamonix Valley Baptist Church and came to know the Lord, got saved, and she was able to come up and worship with him. So I want to send that out as a praise to the Lord, but also as encouragement. Some of you are praying for your loved ones, and you're like, I've been praying 10 years, 15 years, I'm not seeing anything. Never give up praying. Jesus said, men should always pray and not faint. So let's pray together as we begin to look at the ordinances. Father, thank you so much for the encouraging word about Denise's brother and his wife coming to know Christ. Thank you so much that you are a living God and that the gospel is powerfully changing lives. Thank you for what you're doing throughout the world and thank you for what you're doing here at Bible Fellowship. May your Holy Spirit take your word now and cause us to grow in the Lord and to be transformed and challenged to practice what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus was on earth, we don't know how often that he talked about the actual word church. In fact, there's only two times in the entire gospels where the word church is used, and one of them is in Matthew chapter 16. And I want us to look at that as our entry point, because as Jesus was revealing himself, people didn't understand that he's God. I mean, that, that's pretty radical to think that at 30 years old, someone says to his peers around him, I'm God. I, I, I've been up with the Father, and now I'm a God in human flesh. And so the disciples, though they understood him in a certain way to be a great prophet, so, something mysterious, they, they, they're trying to figure out, who is this guy? He, he would calm the storm, and they would go, who is he? And so Jesus progressively was unveiling who he was to the disciples, and we know from the Bible that in order for a person to fully understand who Jesus is, it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. He has to take away the veil from their eyes and, and cause them to be able to see that. And so in Matthew 16, Peter has that experience. Jesus asks in Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus is saying, what are they tweeting about me? What, what's Facebook saying about me today? And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist and some Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus probably paused and says, well, that's nice, but Peter, who, who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, to say that, that's packed with Old Testament meaning. So, to say you're the Christ is to say that you're the one that God promised to come and suffer and rise from the dead. You're he. You're, you're the divine Emmanuel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So before Peter could even go, Yo, I'm, I'm good. Jesus goes, You got it right, but by accident. You didn't get it right because you're smarter than the other yogi bears. You got it right because the Holy Spirit revealed that to you. But then Jesus said something really important. He said, and I say to you that you are Peter. Now, the, the Greek word for Peter, Petros, means a stone. And then he says, and upon this rock, which is a related word, but it's not the same word. It's the word Petra. So he says, you're Petros, a little stone. And upon this Petra, which is a big bedrock, he says this, upon this bedrock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Now, the Roman Catholic Church throughout history has understood this to be saying that Peter himself is the rock, that, that Peter himself is the pope, the first founding father, so to speak, the spokesman for Christ upon whom the church would be built. But I don't think that Jesus is referring to Peter here. I think he's referring to something else when he says upon this bedrock. I think what he's referring to here is his personal identity as the Messiah who would die and rise again. The Old Testament predicted that Messiah would come and die for the sins of his people and that he would be raised from the dead and return to glory and come again to establish his kingdom. And Jesus is saying, upon this bedrock of truth that I died and rose again, then he says this, I will build my church. Now, the problem is, here we are 2,000 years later, and we got it all mixed up. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door and see all the people. We blew it. You're teaching your kids nonsense, right? A church is not a building. A church is God's people. And so I want us to start with this. Before we talk about the ordinances, we go, what is a church? And how does the church fit into God's program? Well, as you look at our mission statement, I don't know if you've seen our new banners. On the back of our bulletin and, and throughout the week and in, on Sundays and in Bible studies, we always say we advance the gospel, making disciples who make disciples. But it's really important that we understand that within the context of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And so <clears throat> there's two ways that we need to look at this. First of all, universally, the church is made up of all of God's people. All of those who have come to faith in Christ. Now, theologians wrestle with this. Christians throughout history have wrestled, when did the church begin? Did the church begin with Jesus? And if it did, what about all the people before that? Are there going to be two different people groups in eternity? Are there going to be Old Testament saints in the church? And so some Christians believe the church began with the first believer, if it was Adam, while others would say, no, it didn't begin until Christ sent his spirit. I think there's room for 
both of those views. But the more important thing is this. The church is made up of only those who are God's people. Which means not everybody here today is part of the church, sadly. And ultimately, that's not our job to ultimately figure out completely who is. The Bible says the Lord knows those who are his. Jesus said there will be the wheat among the tares and they'll grow together, but at the end, God will sort it out. So on the one hand, every person who's ever come to the Lord and been saved by grace, living or dead, is part of the universal church, the body, the bride, and the building of Christ. That's who he's going to come back for. But more importantly, Jesus then qualified and narrowed down to what we want to call local churches. And this is really important because We've moved away from this, especially in American Christianity. The significance and importance of local churches, okay? A local church is not a backyard Bible club. It's not a Tuesday night Bible study. It's not a men's breakfast. The New Testament is very clear on what a local church is. It's a group of believers who, number one, commit themselves to gather regularly, okay? It's not just a convenience club. It's not just... Well, we show up if we're not at the beach or the kids aren't playing ball or if it's not a nice day out. It's a group of believers who commit themselves, number one, to gather regularly. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, do not forsake assembling together as the habit of some is. It's pitiful today. There are American churches that are online churches. Well, you can stay in your pajamas and just go online and Worship, you know, some of you can't sing on key. Imagine typing off key, you know, <laughs> terrible, okay? So a local church is believers who say, hey, I've made a commitment to gather regularly. Secondly, to gather regularly under leadership. The Bible does not teach that a local church is just a free-for-all, a democratic, all, we're all equal, right? The Bible teaches that in the leadership of the local church, there are to be elders, and the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. So it's a group of believers who gather regularly under leadership and then lastly, to carry out God's will for the church. And so there's this constant interaction of gathering and then scattering. Gathering and then scattering. And in both of those scenarios, each one of us who's a believer is carrying out God's will. And so what we need to do is we have to stop and ask, okay, what are Christians supposed to do when they gather? And then what are they supposed to do when they scatter? Well, the scattering part is something I'm not going to talk about too much today other than to say, when you walk out this door, our our calling of God is to live out the gospel. It's to live worthy of the gospel, to love one another, to serve one another, to try to raise our kids for Christ, to try not to be conformed to this world, and to be a witness to this lost world. And so some people would simply say this, Christians scatter to evangelize. We scatter to reach people. But when we gather... It's just as important that we understand that God has intentional purposes for believers when they gather. And one of the most important words that I think we need to recognize when we talk about gathering is we gather corporately to edify, 
to grow and to build each other up. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said this, whenever you Christians assemble, which was weekly, on the first day of the week, he says, let each one of you have a psalm, a teaching, a revelation. Let everything be done for edification. And so we come together not to say, hey, what do you guys want to do today? You want to go out? Oh, it's raining out. We won't have recess. We come together very purposefully. We come because the Lord Jesus has told us to do that. And when we come together, we say, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to edify each other. And how do we do that? And I'd like you to turn this morning to Acts chapter 2 as we still set the framework for how do the ordinances fit within the structure of the gathered church? So just go over a few books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. The apostle... Peter preached a very compelling sermon in the book of Acts where he told the Jews who had just crucified Christ, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And he's Lord and he's Christ. And you're in some serious trouble. And they were so struck by that. In Acts 2.37, it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, what are we going to do now? And Peter said to them, repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Remember, we talked about calling last week. And so sometimes at the end of the sermon when you go, oh, is Pastor Tom going to go and start inviting to get people saved? And some of you get excited about that, and some of you are like, my turkey's burning, and I'll try, I'm trying to stay within the time frame. But look at this verse, verse 40. It says, with many other words, he solemnly testified, and he kept on exhorting them. Peter was pleading with them, be saved from this perverse generation. And I'll just throw that out right now. If you're not saved, I beg you figure out, let us help you to figure out what it means to be saved because if you don't get saved, you're lost. You're going to spend eternity away from Christ in the lake of fire. But, but having given that invitation, people responded. It says in verse 41, so then those who received his word, those who believed the gospel were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. But Acts 2.42 becomes an incredibly helpful verse because it gives us a paradigm, a strategy, a sense of saying, okay, now what? Notice what it says. It says, and they continually devoted themselves. Now, that word devoting themselves, they, they regularly held to this. This was a committed, disciplined practice. Four things. Number one, to the apostles' teaching. So they immediately understood that being a Christian means I need to learn and grow. And that's something that we've been stressing deeply here. We want you to learn and grow. We want you to get a study Bible. We want you to read. We want you to think. We want you to listen to tapes. We want you to get into Bible studies. We want you to grow in your relationship with Christ. Christianity is a content religion. It's not just a feeling faith. But they not only studied and listened 
and learned and grew. But secondly, it says they committed themselves to fellowship. And that word literally means to share. So, so they shared their lives. They shared their property. They shared their relationship with Christ and one another. And if you're a Christian, you should be comfortable talking to others about your relationship with Christ. That's what Christian fellowship is. It's not, hey, you want to come over for some donuts and have some fellowship? We're sharing in the life of Christ. What's God doing in your life? What scriptures are you learning? How's God teaching? What can I pray for you? Here's how you can pray for me. We're bearing one another's burdens. And this is why we beg you to get involved in a small group. Because Christian fellowship in a large setting like this can't really happen. It's more of a one-sided spectator sport. So as we, as we connect with other Christians, we're learning to share together our lives in Christ. But thirdly, it says not only did they have teaching and fellowship, they had the breaking of bread. And there's the element of, or the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Now this passage doesn't tell us how they did it. We just know that they did it. And then finally to prayer of which I want to encourage you that we need to consider how we as a church can do better at that. I want to challenge and encourage you to be regularly involved in personal prayer, family prayer. If you're, not, if you're a Christian and your spouse is a Christian, figure out how you're going to pray together. Okay? But pray together. And if you're not doing that, ask God to help you to learn to pray with your family. Parents, teach your children to pray together. But then... In addition, corporately, we need to learn how to pray with other Christians. It can't be just a, a brief pastoral prayer at the beginning of the service or during the, the sermon. But then we say, okay, so what did the local church do? Well, as they were established into these local communities, and by the way, God wants these to multiply, okay? There, there, there's, a, there's a need and a desire for, for more churches to spring up to grow all over the world in unreached people groups as well as here in this area. And so we say, all right, Lord, well, what do the ordinance have to do with it? So what we learn then is that the church regularly practiced two ordinances. The first one we saw was baptism. Whenever people came to Christ, the Bible says they were baptized. And then whenever they gathered together, the Bible says they broke bread. Now, as far as I can tell from reading the book of Acts, they had the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Acts chapter 20 says, on the first day of the week, we gathered together to break bread. It says they regularly devoted themselves. Now, we've made a decision, maybe a bad one, right or wrong, it's, it's, it's kind of a gray area, not to have it every Sunday. And I can assure you, if you're from another church, if you were to ask your pastor, why don't we have communion every Sunday? Most pastors would say, well, we don't want it to become too too much of a rote thing. We, we, we think it would lose its meaning if we have it every week. And I've often said to people, then the next thing you should say to your pastor, say, Pastor, you know, I was thinking the same thing about preaching. <laughs> you know, I mean, as soon as you start preaching, we tune you out. So I can only say this about the Lord's Supper. If it loses its meaning and it becomes a ritual, the Lord's Supper is not the problem. It's either how we're doing it in the same boring way or it's our heart. But the point is, we call these ordinances because Christ ordained them or commanded them. Now, if you're from some church backgrounds, they call them sacraments, okay? Now, that's not necessarily wrong, but here's the difference. In, in, in our tradition, and, and I would say as we try to interpret the scriptures, 
I'm not as, as comfortable using the word sacraments because in the Roman Catholic tradition, a sacrament is something that earns grace from God. That when you take the sacrament itself, God infuses grace into you. So when you baptize your infant, that sacrament infuses grace to the child. When you take the, the, ta- the cup and the, and the bread, that infuses grace. So for that reason, my preference is, this is mine personally, I prefer to call them ordinances because I don't believe that God infuses grace into people just because they drank the cup or ate the bread. So we've got these two ordinances and we say to ourselves, all right, well, what do we do with them? What's the significance? Now, the interesting thing is, is if, you hold, if you put them side by side, the one thing that they share most importantly is they both point us to the death and resurrection of Christ. They're all about the gospel, right? So, so Jesus says, when you get together, he says, I want you to regularly have the Lord's Supper in regards to the gospel, and I want you to baptize converts in regards to the gospel. So I want to take the last few minutes to just talk about why. Remember that both of them are spiritual representations of invisible realities. I can't see a conversion, and I can't go back to Calvary and see Jesus dying on the cross. So both of them, God's going, I want to give you something tangible and visible that you can look at, that you can taste, that you can feel, that you can reflect on, and both of them remind us of the gospel. So let me just go through these real quick. Number one, baptism pictures the washing and cleansing from our sins, right? So, so the Bible actually uses that word in Acts 22. It says, be baptized and wash away your sins. The Bible speaks of our conversion as a washing of regeneration. So whenever someone gets into the water, okay, it's a picture that they have been cleansed from their sins. God said in the Old Testament, I'll give you a new heart and I'll sprinkle clean water upon you. I'll forgive your sins. So every time we, we see someone go through baptism, we're like, praise the Lord. Another sinner has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they're picturing that through their baptism. Number two, it pictures our crucifixion with Christ and our death to the old life. So in other words, it's not just like, okay, I just, why don't I just wash my hands? Because when I go into the waters of baptism, it's a reminder. The Bible says we're buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. So in essence, one could say this. A baptism is a funeral, only it's a happy funeral. It's our press conference where we say, I have died to this world, and now I'm raised to walk a new life. And every Christian needs to do that. And every Christian who's already done that needs to be reminded of that. So, it's a reminder that I've been washed. It's a reminder that I've died to my old life. It's also a picture of my new life in Christ. The Bible says that not only have I been crucified with Christ, but the Bible says that I've been raised with Christ to walk a new life. So, every time I see a baptism, I'm reminded, hey, I'm a new person. Oh, yeah, I I need to remind myself that. Paul said, you need to consider yourself regularly dead to sin and alive to God. I'm raised with Christ as a new creature. Also, it pictures that I've been placed into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. So when you're baptized, it's a reminder that you now belong to the family of God. And then finally, it's our public identification with Christ. It's your press conference. 
It's your announcement of your new loyalty. It's where you come out and you tell people, this is whose team I'm on. I'm a follower of Christ. And so the Bible says, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. And somebody asked me last week, and it was a really good question. He said, why do you ask people to come forward to profess their faith when I thought that's what baptism is for? I thought baptism is when people say, count me in, and I'm going to publicly acknowledge that. And, and my answer was, you know, that's a really good question. And the only reason I do that is because we don't have baptisms every week. If we did, I would say, well, that's kind of unnecessary to announce your loyalty to Christ when, in fact, you do that at your baptism. So, if you're here this morning and you have trusted Christ, you, you've repented of your sins and you're a believer and you know that you've been forgiven, God's call for you is to get baptized, okay? It's not an optional thing. It's not something where Jesus says, hey, um, if, if you feel like it. On the other hand, I want to put out a caution. There's a, a movement and there's a book right now that the Church of Christ has put out and I think it's called um, muscle and a shovel. There's this dangerous teaching among the church of Christ that baptism is a requirement for salvation. And I want to make sure that nobody here is misled by that. They, they take three verses in the New Testament and they, in my mind, they twist them. In Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And so they make that a requirement for salvation. I want to make sure you understand this, that baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Any more than in the book of Galatians that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. So if anyone says to you, hey, the Bible says you must be baptized to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. So having said that, let me close with just a couple thoughts. Number one. So what do I do with these ordinances? You know, I come, I show up, and I go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So first of all, they're, they're, they're supposed to cause me to reflectively remember. It wasn't my idea, it was Jesus' idea. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So when I take the Lord's Supper, I'm thinking deeply about the cross. How often should I think about the gospel? Daily, moment by moment. I should constantly be reminding myself, I'm dead with Christ, I'm alive with Christ, I'm forgiven by Christ, I belong to Christ. Paul says, God forbid that, that, that I should boast in anything but the cross through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. So we reflectively remember. And that should lead you to praise the Lord. You and I should sing praise to the Lord because of what he's done. The psalmist said, what shall I render to the Lord for his benefits to me? If I look at the cross, what shall I Praise. Praise and worship, falling down and and singing and adoring him and thanking him over and over again. And if you've lost the wonder of it all, then repent and ask God to, to stir our hearts. It's so easy as Americans to lose the focus of Calvary. When you get to heaven, you and I are going to fall down and say, you're worthy. You were slain for us. You purchased us to God. So reflectively remember that when you see someone baptized, that you and, and they have died and been forgiven and raised to Christ. Reflectively remember when you take the cup. Secondly, celebrate and anticipate. Remember that, that Austin just said, Jesus said, until I come, until I come. Every time someone gets baptized, every time we take communion, it's a reminder. The Bible says, whenever you take this bread and cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So Jesus is coming. Please say amen to that. Amen. 
And I, I was thinking of this last night. I'm riding along, and I'm going, Jesus could come right now. Don't forget that. We need to remind ourselves that. So we celebrate and anticipate. But third, baptism and communion is a time to recommit and be renewed. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me word it differently. How about re-renounce your sins and recalculate your loyalty to Christ? You say, oh, I already did that at camp when I was nine years old. I gave my life to Jesus, right? That's it. We need to continually do this. And so when I come for communion, the Bible says examine yourself and think, am I living my life for Christ or for me? And frankly, I'll be the first one to say, "Mm, depends on the day. And so constantly when we come for communion, it's a chance for us, as Paul said, cleanse out the old leaven of wickedness. And ask myself ruthlessly, am I living for Christ? Are my motives for Christ? And then to recalculate and, and to resurrender myself to Christ. This is a daily thing. This isn't something you just do once in a while. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you take up your cross daily. You must be willing to die to self. And so as we close this morning, I want to encourage each one of you to celebrate the gospel to remember the death and resurrection of Christ. This is why, I'm going to say it again, I'm only going to say it once. If you haven't gotten the book, The Gospel Primer, every time another person gets it, they go, wow, that book's so good. I just talked to somebody the other day. They're like, wow, I bought a whole bunch of them, give them out. My wife read it, she bought a whole bunch of them, give them out. It's so centrally focused on the gospel of Christ. So if you haven't gotten that, I'd encourage you to get The Gospel Primer. But this morning, ask yourself a very simple question. If you're a Christian, who are you living for? Amen. The Bible says this. He died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And so let's close this morning by renewing our commitment to Christ. Renouncing anything in our lives that's not a Christ follower. And then recalculating, saying, Lord, one day at a time, help me to live for you. So we gather as a local church to be edified through these elements. And then we scatter in order to reach the lost. Be in prayer that many more would come to Christ. If you're here this morning and you want to learn how to be saved, we'd be happy to talk to you about it. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that it was your purpose to build your church. And the church is not about a building and it's not about us. It's a place where believers gather in the name of Jesus. And you said in the word of God that when we gather, that you yourself are in our midst. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you left us two symbols, two ordinances that remind us of the centrality of the gospel. Lord, today, each one of us who's a Christian, we want to take a moment to thank you so much for dying freely to pay the full penalty for our sins. Thank you that you will never give up on us. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for for crucifying us with you. Remind us, Lord, as we go forth that we're new in Christ, that we're raised with Christ, that we can walk a new life because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Lord, we all want to corporately confess the shame of our sin, our worldliness, our comfort, 
our less than sincere devotion to you. Lord, help us as a church to grow in personal holiness, renouncing the things of darkness, renouncing lukewarmness, renouncing pride and fear, renouncing jealousy and lust. Lord, may we draw near to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you will do what you did in the book of Acts, that you will add to our church daily those who are being saved. So as we scatter, I ask, Father, may the Holy Spirit pour out your power upon the body of Christ. And may the Lord equip each one of you to do his will. May the Lord send you out today for divine appointments to live for him and to advance the gospel until he comes. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.